look at the first 22 verses or the first chapter of of Ruth and spend the next uh, three or four weeks considering this book together and what its message is for us, what it has for us from God's word. There's a woman named Karen Armstrong, and she is a former nun. Uh, she turned back from her faith, and now she seems to have taken a more eclectic form of religious faith. That means she's kind of gone through the buffet of religions and uh, picked and chosen what elements of each that she likes, and she kind of holds those together. Um, she's, she's taken to writing on comparative religion, particularly writing on how similar the, the world religions are. And so she's written about Islam and Judaism and uh, the other world religions and how they compare with one another, specifically how they're similar to one another. So that flavors her statement about religion when it comes to suffering. She says this, All religions are designed to teach us how to live joyfully, serenely, and kindly in the midst of suffering. All religions are designed to teach us how to live joyfully, serenely, and kindly in the midst of suffering. Now her statement, of course, has some issues. I'm sure you've, you've picked out several of those just in hearing it. But let's think about the truth that's in her statement. It is true that all religions teach us something about how to live in the midst of suffering. You know, that's, I think that speaks to the commonality of what we all experience, that suffering is such a universal experience for humanity. It teaches us, each religion does teach us how to live in the midst of suffering, but consider how it is they do that. Right? They vary on how they teach us to live through suffering. So Islam teaches you to grin and bear it. Right? That's what Islam means, submission. Submit to God in the midst of suffering. It's either a punishment or a test, but your job is to submit. Buddhism teaches you to empty your mind, to separate yourself from the situation. And really, uh, Buddhism would teach that suffering is caused by our own inner selfish cravings. Therefore, get rid of the selfish cravings and you will not have any suffering. Distance yourself from those cravings and you'll distance yourself from suffering. Moralism teaches you to be good and all your suffering will vanish. In other words, many, many Christians may view this as long as you are obedient and try to faithfully live for others, then God will then bless you with a good life free from suffering. Judaism may come closer to the truth in that it would say there is a God who is full of mercy and compassion. And he wants you to trust in him in the midst of it. There would be along with that some of this same idea of it's either a test or perhaps a punishment for your sin. But only in Christianity do we have a God who is both absolutely sovereign all, over all of our suffering and one who is full of mercy and grace who came down and entered into the suffering of this world. He didn't do it simply to give us an example of how to live either in the midst of suffering. He came down to save us from our sins, to restore us to a right relationship with God, indeed to restore all of creation from its futility and despair. Well, friends, how do you respond to suffering in your life? 
Maybe unwittingly, you respond in one of these other ways. Maybe you just grin and bear it. You, you, you just submit. Maybe you try to, to, to distance yourself from the suffering in a sort of philosophical way. Maybe you try to keep all the rules. Maybe you think, well, it must be I'm suffering in some way because I'm lacking faith or I'm lacking morals. I've sinned in some way and God is punishing me for that. Maybe you could even consider, maybe you're not going through suffering. You haven't been through much suffering in your life. Maybe you could kind of consider just the minor frustrations and annoyances that you go through. How do you respond to those? Because in some sense, those are just microcosms of how we would respond in a, in a more severe testing or frustration. How are you prone to, to respond, even if you, you know it's not theologically the correct way? What tendencies, tendencies do you have to respond to suffering? Well, in Ruth chapter 1, we find a couple different responses to suffering. And in seeing those responses, maybe we'll see a little bit of ourselves. Maybe we will be convicted of our own Naomi-like bitterness. Maybe we'll be inspired to have courageous courage like Ruth. Maybe we'll be captivated by the character of God in such a way that we will respond appropriately, that we will respond with courage because of His loving kindness, because of His steadfast love for us in Christ. Look at Ruth chapter 1 with me as I read through it. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there, But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years. And both Malon and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law 
has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Our Heavenly Father, please take this, your holy word, and apply it to the hearts and minds of your people. Use it to shape us. Use it to inform us. Use it to, to convict us and to change us. Move by your Holy Spirit through the preaching and reading of your word so that we would receive it with faith. Please nourish your people that we would respond appropriately in the midst of suffering and trials. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. In the first five verses, the author rather quickly describes the background of the story. So the story takes place, notice, in the days when the judges judged. This is why I think our English translations have placed the book of Ruth between Judges and 1 Samuel. So in a sense, it bridges the gap from the time of the judges to the first kings of Israel. The Hebrew order is different. Uh, Ruth is grouped with the writings, and so the order is Psalm, Job, Proverbs, Ruth. And so as we'll continue this series, we'll see ways that this Hebrew book order flavors our reading of the book of Ruth. For now, though, observe the situation of the story, the background. It was in the days of the judges. We're reminded at the end of the book of Judges that in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. In addition, we read here that there's a famine. There was a famine in the land. There was moral and spiritual dryness. And there was dryness in the land. So this Israelite man, Elimelech of Bethlehem in Judea, goes to dwell in the fields of Moab. In these five verses we see, and further, we see this contrast of these two place names. They're repeated several times. Bethlehem of Judah and the fields of Moab. The land of Yahweh and the land of the Moabite god Chemosh. The land of the promise and the country outside the land of promise. It's interesting to note that the narrative focuses in on one particular person, Naomi. We do see the name, names of Naomi's sons and daughters-in-law of her husband. But Elimelech dies, and it says the woman remained along with her two sons. And then her sons die, and she, the woman, is all that remains of her family. 
Naomi had left her home because of the famine and dwelt in the fields of Moab. Her husband dies. Her son, her sons take Moabite wives, and then they die. She is far from home, and she has lost everything. Empty. So at the very outset of our story, we're reminded of what the teacher in Ecclesiastes saw. This world has been plunged into brokenness and despair because of sin. So famine and death, disease, they're a part of this life for both those who are God's people and those who aren't God's people. Do not fall for the lie that as long as you do the right things in life, you'll be protected and your family members will be protected. Like it's some sort of bargain with God. As long as I obey you, you'll make sure nothing bad happens to my kids, to my family. Live long enough and someone you love will die. Someone you love will get a disease. And how we respond in those moments will in some ways depend on how we prepare ourselves now when we're not in the midst of suffering. In other words, the time to learn your theology of suffering is not when you're in the midst of it, but before you get there. Naomi and her daughters-in-law had experienced great sorrow. But next we'll see how they respond to it. Naomi returns from the fields of Moab because she hears this report in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. This term visited refers to God observing and taking notice, but he doesn't just take notice, he actually moves toward them to meet their needs. He gives them food. How did he visit his people? By giving them food, by providing for him. So word has spread even to this foreign land, the fields of Moab, that the Lord was at work among his people in their land. So Naomi sets out to return home, but look how she instructs her daughters-in-law. First, she gives them an instruction, go, Go back. Return to your mother's house. Go back home. Second, she asks blessings on them. Notice the two blessings. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The word there translated kindly is a word you've probably heard of translated as steadfast love, loyal love, loving kindness. One scholar says that this is more than ordinary human loyalty. It imitates the divine initiative which comes without being deserved. This is the word used in Genesis 39 of how God dealt with Joseph even though he was in prison. He showed him steadfast love and gave him his favor. And this is the word used in Exodus 34 and many times afterwards in a a refrain When the Lord showed Moses a part of his glory and then went before him and proclaimed the name of the Lord. He proclaimed his character. He says, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in, this is our word, steadfast love. Abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. This phrase, abounding in steadfast love, shows up over and over again, speaking of the character of, of our God. Notice the second blessing that she gives. The Lord grant you that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. 
So as Naomi thought about their options, she knew it would be best for them to go back home, to go back to their mother's house, and then to find husbands for themselves. And there they would find rest. They would find security. They would find wholeness and protection. And it's almost like another command, an imperative. May the Lord grant you this. Find rest in your husband's houses. Go find rest there. Now notice this. Naomi knows something of the character of God. That he is a God abounding in steadfast love. She knows that he gives rest and security to his people even after what she had experienced. And look, she even applies it in a universal way, not just God's people. She applies this to Moabites, people who are outside of the covenant community of faith. However, because of her own experience, what she's been through, she cannot apply this knowledge of God's character to her own situation. It's almost the flip side of what we saw in Jonah. Jonah is able to experience and apply the grace of God in his own life, but he's not able to extend that out to people of other nations. But Naomi, because of her experience, because of the suffering she's been through, she, she can't apply God's loving kindness to her own situation. She can't even consider that that would be a part of her experience. And this is a part of what it means to prepare for trials. So we all know there's a sense in which you can't prepare for trials, right? It doesn't matter perhaps how much you prepare for trials. Nothing prepares you for sometimes what life throws at you. Nothing prepares you for losing a husband or wife or mother or father or child. Nothing prepares a person for getting cancer or having a car accident or going broke. There's a sense in which you can't prepare for any of these things. But in another sense, you can prepare yourself by steeping yourself in the knowledge of who God is, in the knowledge of His character. Spend time contemplating, studying the character of God in the Scripture. Spend time learning the character of God from Christian history. Here's a thought. Spend time with someone who has trusted in God's steadfast love in the midst of terrible tragedy. You'll learn something from them. There's something about spending time with someone who has faith in the midst of trial. I remember sitting with Linda as she went through chemotherapy. And she was a sweet lady, but even more impressionable about her was her unwavering faith in the midst of fighting cancer. It didn't mean she didn't suffer. It didn't mean she didn't struggle. But she was always ready to hear the good news of the gospel. She was always ready to speak about God's loving kindness to her, His steadfast love, His character. She was always ready to talk about the faithfulness of God. She suffered so much, but rarely did I hear her complain. It's not like I would have been in the situation. It's like she was content resting in this steadfast love of her Savior. And there is where you learn something about the character of God. I don't know if she built that foundation of knowledge of the character of God before she went through the trial or during it, but why not begin your own pursuit of knowing God and His character right now before you go through a trial, before you have to face serious suffering? 
get to know him deeply in his love for his people in Christ. And if you are in a trial, what better time than now to, to begin pursuing? I want to know God. I want to know who he is and his love for us. Pick up uh, a book from Mark Jones called Knowing Christ or the classic that many of you have heard, some of you have read by J.I. Packer, called Knowing God. Get together with a couple of other people and start reading through it together and start discovering the character of God. If you're going through a trial, why not find someone who has been through that particular trial, who has weathered that storm? Find someone who has held fast to the faith in the midst of suffering and start spending time with them that they might teach you about the character of God. And which of us cannot learn more about the character of God? Do you think you have arrived, brother or sister, in knowing who God is and knowing His character? Do you think there's nothing more you can learn about His goodness, about His faithfulness, about His loving kindness? If so, you better think again, right? Don't you know that we will spend eternity plumbing the depths of the knowledge of who God is? How could you think you have arrived in this brief span of time? There is so much of God that we do not know. So let us press on to know the Lord and His character. And when we do, we will have a firmer foundation for when we go through times of suffering. We will know the Lord's loving kindness. We will know that He gives us rest. Well, Naomi sends the daughters back with a blessing, but they protest. Naomi is insistent. So she uses this term several times. Turn back. Turn back to your home. Return. Turn back, my daughters. You have hope, but not if you come with me. You don't, there's nothing for you if you come with me back to Bethlehem. There aren't any options. And as we look at verse 13, we begin to see more about how Naomi feels about her own situation. It is exceedingly bitter to me, more so than for you, for the hand of the Lord has come out against me. We'll hold that thought for a few minutes until we come to see more of Naomi's views in the last few verses. But notice, though, how her daughters-in-law respond to Naomi's pleas. Orpah makes what is really a natural and logical decision. She sees that her best option is to go home. I will go back to home to my mother's house, to my family, to the land I grew up in, the land I know, the people I know, the gods I know. It's all familiar. This is the logical choice. So Orpah kisses Naomi and then goes back home. But Ruth clings to her. So Naomi commands Ruth again. Your sister-in-law has turned back to her people, to her gods. Go back like her. Turn back like her. She's making the right choice, but Ruth will have none of it. She makes the unnatural, illogical, but courageous choice. It's a choice of faith. And these words of Ruth show the steadfast love that she had for her husband while he was living and that she displayed for Ruth as well. Look what she says. Don't, don't come to me and say I should forsake you by turning back from following you. You see, for Ruth to turn back from Naomi would be to leave her even more destitute than she already was. Helpless. 
So she roots, I love Ruth's insistence. Here's how it's going to be, right? Where you go, I'm going. Where you lodge, I lodge. Your people, my people. Your God, my God. Where you die, I die, and I'll be buried there. And she makes a solemn oath to Yahweh. May punishment befall her if she does otherwise. And so then Naomi, I mean, what will you say to that? (laughs) That is determination, isn't it? So she says nothing more. Now Ruth, notice Ruth is not looking out for her own interests here. It's not that she thinks, I'll have better opportunities in Bethlehem with Naomi. Just think about, about the fact that she will be entering into Bethlehem as a foreigner as one who is different than the others who are in Bethlehem, an outsider coming into the covenant family of God. Spent some time with a brother from Venezuela recently, and he leads music at a church in Nightdale, a Hispanic church, and we sat and talked for a few minutes, and I was just blown away about how my experience had nothing in common in many ways with his experience of being a Hispanic in North Carolina. I was blown away by the challenges that he and other Hispanics have faced. I I just couldn't believe it. It was totally outside of my experience. Have you ever had that experience before? You you meet someone and they, you can't even imagine what it would be like. It's so odd. It's so different that I have no idea what they go through on a daily basis. This is what Ruth is doing in some ways. She, She is determined to go with her mother-in-law to a place where she doesn't belong. She's doing it for Naomi, not for herself. She's displaying steadfast love, just like she did to her husband while he was living, just like she did for Naomi while they lived 10 years in the fields of Moab. See, Ruth was a very reflection of that steadfast love that Naomi knew was in God himself. Isn't it wonderful how the author here of Ruth already makes a non-Israelite the hero of the story? How he makes a non-Israelite, a Moabite, the courageous person in the story. See, in some ways, the author is pushing against this ethnic pride of the Jews, this ethnocentrism, this national pride. We are the people of God. We are His. And here's Ruth, the Moabitess, displaying steadfast love, which reflects the steadfast love of Yahweh. It's beautiful. I wonder where she learned the language of the people of God, maybe from her husband, maybe from her mother-in-law, but however she learned it, Here she comes to a crossroads and she makes it clear whom she will follow. Yahweh, the God of Israel, is her God. The covenant people of God are her people. Ruth's, what I see as a conversion, helps us see something about the nature of conversion and commitment. She not only commits herself to Naomi's God, but also to Naomi. She not only commits herself to Naomi and her God, but to the covenant community of God. Friends, what has characterized your relationship to God and His people? 
So in this we see God has called us not just to be individual followers of God, committed merely to Him, but that He has called us to be a part of a people. He's called us into a fellowship, into a partnership. Right? We know the Greek word of koinonia. This is the fellowship, the partnership of the believers. It's not that we have to become one. It's that He has made us one in Christ Jesus. And Ruth's commitment serves as a good example to us here. But consider even if you are a member of Christ Church Rollsville, what does our commitment look like? Ruth the Moabite can instruct us here in our commitment. Is it merely like we are a family? Is our membership more like a loose affiliation of like-minded Christians where every week we come and say hello and then when we leave we say, I'll see you next week? Is it the community of God as, as He has intended it for us? This sort of commitment of steadfast love for one another? It's not something we have to create. He has created it in Christ for us. But we should give ourselves to it. Consider now Naomi and Ruth's return home to Bethlehem. And we saw a contrast between Orpah and Ruth and how they responded to, to Naomi. Now we see another contrast, this time between Naomi and Ruth. They arrive in Bethlehem and the whole town is stirred up. That means they were excited to see Naomi. They haven't seen her in 10 years and here she is. You know how, what that's like, maybe a family reunion or a high school reunion. You're hanging out with a group and, and so-and-so walks in and you, you're all excited. Oh, look, there, there she is. Haven't seen you in so long. She looks different, but you can tell it's, it's her. And the whole town is excited to see Naomi, especially the women. And the women are saying, is this Naomi? Naomi, this is her. And she says, stop it. Don't call me that. Do not call me Naomi. Naomi means pleasant. Call me Mara which means bitter. Call me bitter, she says, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. Naomi uses this name for God twice. So you've probably heard the term El Shaddai. This is Shaddai here, the Almighty. By doing so, she's emphasizing the power and the sovereignty of God over all things. In other words, she recognizes that he is in control of these things. She affirms his sovereignty, his providence. But for her, it has been a very bitter providence. She recognizes the sovereignty of God without recognizing his loving kindness for her. Don't even call me pleasant anymore. Just call me bitter. She says, I myself left full, empty the Lord has turned me back the Lord has testified against me and there's the Almighty again the Almighty has brought calamity upon me now maybe you've recognized throughout this narrative even here in chapter 1 this term returned has come up over and over and over again this term returned or turned back in verse 22 and this word is used 15 times throughout the book of Ruth, but here in the first chapter it's used 12 times. 12 of the 15 times is right here. 
most of the time in this chapter is just returning physically from one place to another. You can see it throughout. In verse 6, you can see it. In verse 7, 8, 10, 11, 12, 15, 16. And then in verse 21, Naomi says the Lord turned her back, returned her empty. And you see it twice here in verse 22. Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab. Now what's interesting about the author's use of this word is that Ruth has never been to Bethlehem. How is she returning to Bethlehem when she's never been there? So I think his repetition of this word, along with his using it here, makes me think he's up to something more than simply a physical return from one place to another. Sometimes the word is used for a spiritual movement from one place to another, or as we know, repentance, a turning back. So we have Naomi and Ruth both returning home, but only one is returning to a right relationship with Yahweh. Naomi is returning home empty and bitter against God. She believes in the sovereignty of God, but she believes that God is completely against her. He only has calamity in store for her. No hope. She clings to faith. She still still knows God is in control, but she thinks God is opposed to her. Ruth, on the other hand, she has turned her back on her unbelief. She's turned back on her mother. She's turned her back and clung instead to Naomi. She has turned her back on her people, the Moabites, and clung to the covenant people of God. Ruth has turned her back on the Moabite gods. She returned from the fields of Moab, and she has clung to Yahweh, the God of the Hebrew people. They both returned to the land of promise, but one is full of emptiness and bitterness, and the other is full of faith, courage, and steadfast love. Remember, Ruth had been through a tragedy too. She had lost her husband. It's true, she hadn't lost quantifiably as much as Naomi had, but since when has comparing tragedies been helpful, comforting? Naomi's loss doesn't make Ruth's any less bitter. So we have Naomi, the Israelite, responding to bitter providence with bitterness against God. And we have Ruth, the non-Israelite, the Moabite, responding to bitter providence with steadfast love, courage, and faith. She forsakes her unbelief and her foreign gods, and she clings in faith to Yahweh, the God of Israel. So then, friends, we have a choice. How will we respond to the bitter providences of God in our lives? Will we turn, return back to God filled with bitterness against Him? Or will we turn our backs on unbelief? And our false idols that we frequently turn to in the midst of sorrow and tragedy. Where will we turn in the midst of our sufferings? Will we cling to Him in faith? How will you respond when you face trials in this life? How are you responding right now? Well, we know the rest of the story in the book of Ruth. And although Naomi is filled with bitterness and unbelief, the Lord restores her life. He meets her bitterness with blessing. Even though she blames God, 
She doesn't forsake him, and surprisingly, he meets her with his grace. See, this is the surprising thing about grace, isn't it? It comes to those who don't deserve it. That's what grace is. He doesn't give us what we deserve, but what Christ has deserved for us. So maybe you are like Naomi, filled with bitterness, frustration toward God. And even you can come to Him and He will greet you with His grace. Because you know of your Savior, Jesus Christ. You know His life was filled with bitterness and sorrow. He suffered and died on the cross and all His friends turned against Him. He felt so alone that it seemed to Him His Father had forsaken Him. But He volunteered for that job. He volunteered for His role in redemption. It didn't just come on Him blindly as suffering and life happens to us. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, voluntarily entered into suffering for the sake of His people, to die for our sins, to turn us back from our sins to God, that we might receive favor from Him even though we haven't deserved it. And this is the good news of the gospel. Not that we just have to grin and bear our sufferings. Not that we could just mentally escape from our sufferings but that God has come down and entered into our suffering and died for our sake to give us hope and new life. Our passage for this morning ends in verse 22. Naomi and Ruth come to Bethlehem, translated the house of bread. And they come at the beginning of the harvest. No matter what you've been through or what you've experienced, whether you've come to Him with resolute courage turning your back on your unbelief or if you've come to him filled with emptiness and bitterness and disappointment and despair and unbelief, there's hope for a harvest. There's hope which lies ahead. There is hope that you'll be filled. In Jesus Christ, there is a hope that what has been broken can and will be made whole again. And we have that hope not because necessarily tomorrow will be brighter or that we won't have suffering tomorrow or next year or 10 years from now. But we have this hope because Jesus entered into our suffering for us and we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weaknesses, but one who has been tested in every way yet without sin. So what, what encouragement then do we have, brothers and sisters? Let us then draw near to the throne of grace so that in our time of need, we will receive His mercy. In our sufferings, we should go to God in confident hope that He will turn our heartbreak into hope. For if we come to Him, He's ready to meet our emptiness and bitterness with His steadfast love. The Lord, the Lord, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness for his people. Let us pray together.